We're reading from Matthew 26, 47 through to 27, verse 10. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with a sword and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seizing Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with sword and club to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be, might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to, are you not going to answer? What is this testament these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the, the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people, There, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. 
Then Peter remembered the word of Jesus and had the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Jesus, who had betrayed sorry, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? they replied. That's your responsibility. So Jesus, so Judas, threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coin and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken to Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. of status quo. The Greeks uh, have tried so many times to put their monk inside a tomb, but that's not, uh, they don't have the right to put their monk inside the tomb when the Armenians are celebrating the, uh, uh, the feast. During our procession, the Greek archbishop and their priests stopped and they stopped our way, so they prevented us to continue our procession. So from that point, what happened, you have already witnessed. here in front of the Holy Sepulchre, in front of the Holy Sepulchre in which our Lord Jesus Christ was buried and resurrected. The Armenians have today their feast, the feast of the Holy Cross. But during this feast, we have the right to have inside the Holy Sepulchre uh, our guardian. They deny this right and they tried several times by violence to let our guardian be outside. We protested peacefully, we stood here in the middle and we claimed that we shall not leave their procession finished unless they leave our guardian inside. This didn't happen and in that moment the police interfered. We tried our best not to use violence against the police or against the Armenians because this is our attitude. Peaceful coexistence with the whole Israelis. Well, I thought the uh, brawl at the end of the, uh, was it the second state of origin match, uh, last minute, was that was pretty good. Um, but uh, boy, that was not a state of origin match. Uh, it wasn't even the South Korean parliament. You've seen those guys uh, go at it, you know, with fisty cuffs. 
that was a punch-up that happened, uh, if you didn't kind of get the drift of it there, it happened in Jerusalem in November of last year. The venue for the fight was a place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Anyone been there before? Okay, a few people who have been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You probably know more about it than I do. So, Mark, come up the front and do the sermon. Um, no, you don't have to do that. Uh, you know, they reckon that the side of the Holy Sep- the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, actually covers over the um, the place where Jesus was crucified and also uh, where he was buried. Now, of course, you know, that's always debatable as to the exact sites and so on, but nevertheless, thousands of tourists go there every year. A few people in this church right now have been there as tourists, no doubt. And uh, the BBC reported on this particular punch-up. They said that, uh, and this and I quote, Uh, Shocked pilgrims looked on as decorations and tapestries were toppled during Sunday's clash. Uh, Dressed in the vestments of the Greek Orthodox and Armenian denominations, rival monks threw punches and anything that they could lay their hands on. The Greeks blamed the Armenians for not recognising their rights inside the holy site. While the, uh, while the Armenians said that the Greeks had violated one of their traditional ceremonies. Okay, what it amounts to is this, that inside that um, church there's a, some kind of a structure. Uh, Mark and uh, Lauren or uh, Omid and Anna will be able to tell you about it later. There's some kind of a structure which they reckon uh, encases the tomb where Jesus was buried. And one of, the, uh, one of the Greek monks tried to enter into that, uh, that place whilst the Armenians were in the process of performing some kind of a ceremony. And it was a fight about who had the rights to be inside that little place at that particular time. Uh, tempers flared, the police were called, And the police statement said that uh, two monks on either side uh, were detained. Now, it's stunning, isn't it? Actually, I thought it was quite funny, to be honest uh, with you, but uh, that's just me. But can you imagine what the tourists that were there on that day thought? You know, they've come along to see this holy shrine and uh, they get a bit more for their money. They see a a punch-up between rival monks, It's exactly the opposite to what you would expect, especially in that particular place. Because remember, this is the supposed site where 2,000 years ago, Jesus chose not to use violence uh, against his enemies as they arrested him and as he went uh, willingly to the cross. Yet this is certainly not the first time that uh, people who claim to follow Jesus have uh, resorted to violence. Um, Those monks, um, they were just angry and frustrated with each other. And according to the news reports, this certainly isn't the first time that they've become angry and frustrated with each other, although it usually doesn't descend to that level of violence. But there have been times in history when people have believed that it was the right and the godly thing to take up arms and to fight and to kill other people 
in order to accomplish God's will uh, and in, in order to uh, establish Jesus' kingdom here on earth. I'm thinking particularly of the Crusades uh, between 800 to 1,000 years ago, over a, a period of 200 years, uh, there, there were so-called Christian armies. And uh, these Christian armies, in inverted commas, waged war against uh, people, particularly Muslims and uh, other pagan religions, uh, because they thought that by, by taking up the sword that they were establishing this kind of Christian empire that extended across Europe and other parts of the known world. And especially, they wanted to capture Jerusalem. That was a focal point for these battles that these so-called Christian armies were involved in. The Pope, or his representative, would give these soldiers a cross and uh, they would then uh, be known as soldiers of the church. Now, it's kind of, it's weird to think of that, isn't it? You know, it's almost, you hear of the Lebanese conflict where they have the Christian militia, you know, going into battle and that sort of thing. And it, it's the complete opposite to what Jesus was actually on about. Uh, we see that very clearly in Matthew chapter 26. If you'd like to open up your Bibles at today's passage... Uh, because in Matthew 26, there's, there's one line there which has really found its place in the English language. And uh, it's in verse 52 where, you know, we've got this phrase, don't we, in English where we say that, you know, whoever uh, lives by the sword, has it finished, dies by the sword. You know the saying. Well, it comes from this passage. Now, let me set the scene, particularly for those of you who weren't with us last week. Jesus and his disciples were inside, were, were at the Garden of Gethsemane. It's on the Mount of Olives. It's just across from the Kidron Valley. It's only a short walk from the uh, walls of the city of Jerusalem. It was night time and the scene was set for, for a confrontation to take place, a tense confrontation. The disciples were not very clear as to what exactly was going to happen. But what we do know uh, in verse 51 uh, is that one of the disciples had actually brought with him a sword. Uh, Luke in his gospel tells us that that disciple was Peter and that Peter was not alone in that, that there were a number of disciples at least who had swords with them. But look at Judas Look who Judas brought with him when he showed up in verse 47. Let me read verse 47 for you. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd. Some of the scholars say that this could have actually been hundreds of people. And they were armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So think about the, the, the situation here, folks. This is a dark place. It is a, secl a secluded park. There are two groups of men, one vastly outnumbered, but both groups of men are carrying weapons. Now, most likely there were some Roman soldiers in amongst the crowd that had come with Judas and also some of the temple police. In other words, these guys had come prepared for a fight. And you can almost feel the tension in the air. 
Just think about it. Jesus and his disciples are there. This large crowd comes. Judas steps forward, approaches Jesus, kisses Jesus, calls him rabbi. Jesus refers to him as friend, but this is no warm, loving reunion. There is real, very real, very serious tension in the air. And the tension reaches boiling point in verse 50 when Jesus is apprehended and one of the disciples, Peter, takes up his sword and lashes out and slashes off the ear of one of the servants who had come with the crowd. Now, humanly speaking, odds were that the disciples were going to lose this fight, right? But nevertheless, what we see here is that Peter was prepared to, uh, uh, to fight physically, if necessary, in order to stand up for Jesus and defend Jesus. So that is the scene. And it turns out that this confrontation is actually very helpful for you and me because it helps us to understand something of the character and the nature of Jesus' mission and it helps us to understand something of how God's kingdom is established and how God's kingdom grows. Uh, of course, in Jesus' day, there were, there were other uh, rebel leaders who were trying to lead a rebellions against the Romans who were occupying Jerusalem at the time. There were many of those insurrectionists. Um, these days, uh, there are people who've got different views on how God's kingdom is established. Uh, we don't take up swords, we don't take up guns to do it. But uh, there are people who think that we can establish God's kingdom by political action and uh, by radical uh, social action and so on. And those things certainly have their place. But the question is, is that how God's kingdom is established? Well, in verse 52, Jesus instructs his disciples to put 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 away their weapons And he gives two reasons. I want you to look at these reasons for a moment. First of all, Jesus doesn't need help. I mean, Jesus has the authority, if he chose to do so, to call down 12 legions of angels. You know, some say, well, that means that that's one legion for Jesus and 11 legions for all the other remaining disciples. That's just speculation. Uh, A legion in a Roman army was 600 men. And so uh, what Jesus is saying here is that, you know, like at a a, a moment's notice, I could call down 7,200 angels to deal with this situation. So I don't need you to draw your weapons. But secondly, Jesus is not leading a rebellion. If you have a look at verse 55, Jesus thinks the whole idea that he's leading some sort of a rebellion is, is just ludicrous. I mean, we have been... Uh, studying Matthew's gospel for close on two years now and we have been greatly exposed to the teaching of Jesus. Now let me ask you this question. In all of the teaching of Jesus, has there been one hint that he was actually some sort of a political military insurrectionist? Has there been one skerrick of data in his teaching 
that would lead you to that conclusion? And the answer's got to be no. Now, some of these people who came to Jesus on that, on that night uh, were the, the, the religious leaders, and they had sat in on Jesus' teaching. This is his point in verse 55. Uh, they had sit, sat in on his teaching, or stood up as he sat down and taught, in the temple courts, and it is ludicrous, it is ridiculous to think, having heard the, his teaching, to conclude that he was a military, political insurrectionist. And so the fight is off. There's not going to be a fight. Jesus simply submits to his enemies and he is arrested. Now, because of that, Jesus appears to be weak and defeated. And I think we see that uh, in a number of ways. We see that firstly in the reaction of his disciples. Uh, in verse 56, they fled the scene. They took off. Uh, all of their courage, uh, their hope, and I think also their trust in God has simply evaporated uh, in, this, in this scene. They've, 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 they've fled, they've deserted Jesus, as he said that they would. Peter, though, is a bit different, isn't he? I mean, um, in, in verse 58, Peter followed Jesus, but he did so from a distance, didn't he? So you, you see this conflict within Peter. It's very Peterish because he's sort of torn halfway between being courageous and being a coward. You remember, Jesus had already told Peter that he was going to deny him three times on that night and maybe the reason why, G, why Peter is following Jesus is because he's got that in his mind and he's thinking, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to deny Jesus. But he was scared. Jesus did look weak. And maybe Peter might have thought, I'm on the losing side here. And so in verses 69 to 75... Peter is with a group of people. He's outside the home of the high priest. And three times he's approached. He's asked whether or not he is one of Jesus' friends. And three times he says, no, I'm not. I don't know the man. And then he hears a rooster crow. And he's reminded of what Jesus had said. And we're told that he's devastated that he wept bitterly, that he broke down and cried. So Jesus' disciples thought that he was weak and defeated. They were disillusioned. But secondly, Jesus' enemies thought that Jesus was defeated. I mean, this was their moment of triumph, wasn't it? They were feeling absolutely chuffed. At last, Jesus was their prisoner. At last, Jesus was in their custody. In verse 67, they spat in his face. They punched him. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They, they called him, have a look at verse 67, they called him Christ, but that is not a term of worship. That is, you know, they're saying, look, you think you're the Christ, but look at your situation here. You are our prisoner. So they mocked him, they ridiculed him, they beat him. 
But there was one enemy of Jesus who was not relishing this moment, and that was Judas. I won't say too much about Judas, uh, except that in chapter 27, verses 1 to 10, after the religious authorities had uh, pronounced the death sentence on Jesus, and Judas heard about that, this man starts to think maybe that deal wasn't such a good deal after all. Maybe 30 pieces of silver for betraying this innocent man wasn't such a great thing to have done. He goes to the temple, he tries to give his 30 coins of silver coins back. The uh, temple authorities in their great hypocrisy say, no, no, you can't throw that into the, into the temple treasury because that's blood money, even though it was come from them. And Judas, we're told, goes and hangs himself. Friends, Jesus looked defeated. Jesus looked like he was on the losing team. Everybody thought that. Everybody, that is, except for the prosecutors. I want you to think about the prosecutors for a moment here. And what we see about the prosecutors is that they were actually quite frustrated because what they wanted to do is they wanted to, uh, uh, to, to build a legal case against Jesus so that they could justify putting him to death. They had to build a strong legal case to prove that Jesus had actually disobeyed the law of Moses and that in accordance with the law of Moses that he deserved the death penalty. Now, what we have here is clearly a kangaroo court. I found out what a kangaroo court is the other day. It's, uh, it's where you leap over um, normal legal um, procedures in order to achieve your outcome. It's actually an American term, not an Australian term. So this was a kangaroo court. The outcome was determined in advance and they just leapt through the whole process like a kangaroo bouncing through a field. Have a look at verse 59. In verse 59, that the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, which probably means not everyone in the Sanhedrin, but all of the representative groups of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. They've already determined the outcome. They just need to prove it. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. You see, these guys, they didn't care less if the, if the witnesses told lies about Jesus. They just needed to find someone who would tell the, uh, the right lie about Jesus. They just needed someone who would come forward with a lie about Jesus, which was sufficient to uh, incriminate him under the law of Moses. And they couldn't find anyone. Until in verse 60, things started to get promising for them because two witnesses came forward. Now, that was good because the law of Moses required two witnesses before he could convict a person. Two witnesses came forward and they testified that they'd heard Jesus say that he was going to tear down the temple and build, rebuild it in three days. That's also very good because there has to be some law against destroying God's temple. Right? But he hadn't actually done it. So they couldn't convict him of that. And so what we see is that the high priest who was presiding over proceedings 
whose whose, uh, frustration must have been boiling over, decides just to speak directly to Jesus in verse 63. In verse 63, he says, The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, at that point, Jesus has got three choices. He can either keep his mouth shut, which he had been doing so far, but the man's charged him under oath by the living God. So he's got to answer one way or the other. He could answer by saying, no, I'm not the Christ, and in which case the whole, uh, the whole drama just evaporates. But if he says yes, then he's opened himself up to being convicted under the charge of blasphemy. And that is what he does. Jesus' answer is yes, it is as you say. Now I wonder if you can see the irony in, in this. False witnesses telling lies about Jesus would not convict him, but a true witness telling the truth about himself, well, that actually did the trick. Jesus was condemned by his own words. Now, people think of Jesus as being a a revolutionary for a number of reasons. Now, a quick sort of Google search on Jesus the Revolutionary uh, will give you a whole range of reasons why people think that he was so revolutionary. Um, people say that he's revolutionary because he was such a provocative preacher, and that he was. People say that he was a revolutionary because he, you know, he, he often threw the religious authorities into panic by exposing their hypocrisy. Well, I'm into that. That's exactly what he's done. People say that he was revolutionary because he just refused to conform to the establishment. Well, when the establishment's ungodly, then, yep, Jesus is guilty as charged. He's revolutionary in that way. But I want to say to you today that the revolution which Jesus brings is much, much bigger than that. And we see why in these verses. You see, think about the high priest. When Jesus says, yes, I am the Christ, don't you reckon that that would have been the news that the high priest had been waiting for? Don't you reckon that the high priest would have been glad to hear that because he's finally got Jesus on a charge which will convict him? Well, he didn't seem glad at all. If you look carefully, he was enraged. He he took took his clothes and he ripped his clothes apart to demonstrate his absolute indignation and his fury at what Jesus had said. Well, what had Jesus say? What had Jesus said? I think that there's more to what Jesus had said here. And if you look again at verse 64, he answers, yes, it is as you say, but listen to what further he says. But I say to all of you, In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, at that, the high priest is absolutely furious. Why? Well, what is Jesus claiming about himself? 
Jesus is claiming, and we studied the book of Daniel in church here uh, this year, Jesus is claiming to be the, the, the one who fulfills the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. I wonder if you might just thumb back in your Bibles to Daniel 7 just for a brief moment. And uh, you'll find Daniel 7 on page 631. And look down at verse 13. Uh, This is just part of the vision that Daniel had received. But he says in verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now what sort of a revolution is, is, is being spoken about here? This, this is not just a revolution. It's just not like a mission to go and poke the religious leaders in the, in the belly and to you know, annoy them. It's not that kind of revolution that uh, is being spoken of here. Uh, it is not a revolution to kick out some occupying force by use of military power. Uh, it's not a military campaign to even conquer the whole world by the sword. Now, what Daniel 7 is saying is that this son of man will be given authority from God in heaven to rule a kingdom which will encompass men and women of every nation, of every language, of every tribe. And how will this revolution be achieved? It will be achieved by the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days. Do you see that? The Son of Man will come in the clouds to the Ancient of Days and then he will be given authority and power to rule from heaven. Now Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane allowed himself to be arrested. He willingly went to the cross to pay for sin But far from being weak, far from being defeated, he didn't stay dead. Jesus rose from the grave. And after Jesus rose from the grave, we are told that he ascended in the clouds to heaven, to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father. And he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And it is from that position of power and authority that Jesus has sent forth the third person of the Holy Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit has worked the revolution in the hearts of people. I wonder if you'll... uh, Let's sort of skip forward in the story a little bit and uh, go over to Acts chapter 2 for a moment. Because Acts chapter 2 is just remarkable in terms of this display of revolutionary power. Um, We see it primarily, don't we, in the life of Peter himself. 
Because remember, Peter is the guy who flees or who keeps his distance. He follows Jesus, but he keeps his distance as Jesus is arrested. Peter is the disciple who three times denies that he even knows Jesus. But having received, having witnessed the, uh, the resurrection, having received the power of the Holy Spirit in verse 14, far from being timid, far from being ashamed, far from denying that he even knew Jesus, Peter stands up before a crowd which was, I don't know, 20, 30 times bigger than this crowd that's here now, a huge crowd of thousands of people, thousands of people. And he not only declares his personal allegiance to Jesus, but he declares the truth about what has happened in the death of Jesus on the cross, in his raising from the dead. I want you to listen now to how Peter, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, how he, at that point, understood the events that happened that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at verse 22. As he's preaching to the crowd, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourself know. Now listen to this. Listen to verse 23 very carefully. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. See, he didn't think that when it was happening, did he? He thought, no, this is things are out of control here. We're on the losing side. But here, he's come to the view, no, God was sovereign. That was perfectly within the plan of God to hand Jesus over. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to, hold, to keep its hold on him. Because he says, goes on to say, because he's actually the Christ. Now he goes on in verse 36 to say, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He does so through the resurrection from the dead. And the people then wanted to know, well, what do we do about this? How can we respond? In verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And on that day, a revolution began. On that day, 3,000 people turned themselves over to Christ, to Jesus. 3,000 people said, I want Jesus, the risen Jesus, to be the ruler, the Lord, the King of my life. That's revolutionary. It is a revolution of the heart. In verse 42, 
we see just how revolutionary that was in the lives of these people. Because we're told in verse 42 and following that a community was then formed. A community of people who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which means that they devoted themselves to the the truths of the gospel. They devoted themselves to one another, to loving and to serving and, and engaging in each other's lives. And they devoted themselves to praising and honouring God. Their lives were changed upside down. It was a revolution of Copernican proportions that life no longer revolved around them, but around him who had died for them and had risen from the grave and was now ruling the world through the spirit in their hearts. This is Jesus' revolution, and I want to say to you that it is a very attractive revolution because we see in Acts 2 that as that new community of revolutionised people, uh, as they lived godly lives, and as they started to tell other people about who Jesus was and what he had done, in verse 47 we see that many more lives were changed, that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's revolutionary. And we're involved in this revolution, you and me. How how are we involved? How do we grow God's kingdom? Well, it's clearly not through having fistfights in church buildings in Jerusalem. Uh, It's clearly not by, you know, getting weapons and forming Christian armies and going out there and battering people into submission. That's, uh, that's clearly not the case. And ultimately, I would argue that even uh, Christian political and social action, uh, which is incredibly valid and which we ought to be involved in as we have opportunity to do good, but that these things by themselves do not, do not deal with the, the, the deepest uh, problems that, we, that, that humanity faces. And the deepest problem that humanity faces is the problem of the human heart. Uh, Everyone needs a revolution in their heart. Human sin, the need for forgiveness from God and the hope of eternal life are the very real issues that Jesus' death and resurrection resolves. And it's by putting our trust in what Jesus has done that your life can be revolutionised, that your life can be changed, that you can start living for the very purpose for which God has created you, for your life to revolve around him. You and I are involved in that revolution. And the way that we're involved is pretty simple, really. We can be involved by talking to other people, by telling others about who Jesus is and about what he did on the cross and in his resurrection. And it's not so hard, really. You don't have to be Billy Graham. You don't have to be you know, an expert in um, preaching to be able to do that. Because what we see in Acts 2 is that the Christian community lived godly lives and they told others 
about what Jesus had done for them. Are you able to do that? Are you able to share with with other people, with non-Christians, what Jesus' death and resurrection means to you personally? Are you able to share with people how Jesus has changed your life? You see, it's very attractive, isn't it? And that's the revolution that Jesus has brought about. That's the revolution that you and I are a part of. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for uh, Jesus' obedience to you, even unto death on a cross. We thank you that in your set purpose and foreknowledge that he willingly allowed himself to be handed over to his enemies. We thank you that death could not keep its hold on Jesus, that he is the son of man who comes to the ancient of days, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended to your right hand, that he has been handed all glory and honour and dominion and power. We thank you, Father God, that he rules in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls through having poured out his Holy Spirit into our lives. We thank you that the kingdom of Jesus is revolutionary, that the kingdom of Jesus is growing as more and more people talk to others about the gospel and people come to realise the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. We pray for ourselves that we would be engaged in that revolution. Help us to live godly and upright lives in this world as we wait for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Saviour Jesus, our great God and Saviour Jesus. Help us as we are godly people that uh, people would be attracted to us and that we would be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have, that we would be prepared to share with others about our wonderful Lord and Saviour Jesus and the great change that he's made in our lives and that he can make in the lives of many. O Lord, use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.